gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. This is an unscheduled, non-emergency, really just because we dropped the ball, uh, ask me anything episode of the Dispatch Podcast, I mean, of the Dispatch Podcast, of the Remnant Podcast. Sorry, I just got back from the dentist and I'm a little, uh, you know, a little disoriented. I know we had some listeners who wanted more notice. They don't, they're not, they're not on Twitter we are going to figure out a way to do this procedure properly in the future so that our core audience actually gets a chance to ask questions. Um, cause that seems like a fair thing. Adam this morning was saying to me that we should consider really boosting up the AMA kind of thing, but also making it for members only. So, uh, we are considering that as well. But, uh, this was just basically because I have to go to New York. We had a guest fall through. Um, I couldn't record at the normal time because I had to go to the dentist because I had not been to the dentist in quite a while. Um, I kind of feel a little bit like Tom Hanks in Castaway after finally getting back to civilization. Um, I'm less mesmerized by light switches. But other than that, uh, things should. there's going to be some summer scheduling that's going to be a little complicated because of my travels and whatnot, but we'll figure it all out. All right, so with all that out of the way and none of it being particularly interesting, in that spirit, let me bring in Guy. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, speaking of horribly uninteresting and unappealing, it's actually, I, every now and then I do, it's funny you mentioned going to a dentist. Every now and then I do still get notes about, or I can't tell if they're joking or not. I would guess a lot of them aren't. Requests for you to record a podcast high. So if they put you under or gave you some kind of anesthetic, this is a approximation of that for people to see what it would be like. No, I mean, nothing, nothing that exciting. Oh, that's a shame. I thought you were going to say, since you're from England, what's a dentist? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just assuming. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't think me doing a podcast high makes a lot of sense. Uh, like, I, I'm not saying I've never smoked weed because I've smoked weed, but it's been a very long time. And one of the reasons I, I, I stopped doing it is because I didn't enjoy it. I got very paranoid. I got very antisocial. As opposed to how you normally are. <laughs> no, that's true. But like, like uh, that's fair. I think it brings out certain aspects of yourself, right? I just, um, the, only, the only way I would enjoy it is like being alone, which is just not a great sort of relationship with a mind-altering substance to begin with. And uh, me doing a podcast stone would be just a terrible idea because I would probably talk for like an hour of how Every time you hear a creak in your house, if you sped up the tape of that, that would be the sound of your house collapsing. Because that's the thing I used to obsess about. Did that stem from anything in particular? <laughs> no. It just like I, I was like, if you heard these creaks and like you had a recording of it, you could do time lapse recording and you sped it up, those creaks would intensify and eventually, because of the laws of the second law of thermodynamics and entropy, just the house would collapse. And I thought this was the most brilliant insight conceivable. And um, I now think it's utterly banal and probably not true, but like no one wants to hear me talk out loud about that really slowly um, on a podcast. So anyway, people do want to hear the solo podcast, though, evidently. That's true. You know, guy, I mean, once again, you know, the judgment of our audience is superior to you. It's true. Uh, we should have some substance in this thing before people just should we? Yeah, you know, people yell at me when there's no substance. They're like, why did I waste my time 
to listen to you waste your time. And I think that's a fair point. They're going to listen to the next one anyway. So what difference does it make? We should do. No, we, should, <laughs> we should respect the listener. Um, <laughs> frankly, I would say if you haven't listened to the Brett Devereaux one, everyone should just go re-listen to that or listen to it for the first time. Because I, I, I really loved that stuff. And I wish I could have I kept them on for another hour. I, um, and there's all sorts of pop culture stuff that we didn't get into and all sorts of Roman and Greek history stuff that I wanted to get into that I planned to get into and then didn't get into. Um, but we covered a lot of ground. I thought it was great. Anyway, so what questions do you have for me, Mr. Denton? Uh, the, the obvious starting point I thought was a few people requested a dingo update, which I'm assuming enough time has passed now since you originally um, talked about it for you to give. Yeah, so the dingo, uh, aka the white trash swamp dog, um, she does not have a cardiac problem. Um, we took her to, uh, I say we in the imperial we, my wife did it because I had all sorts of conflicts, to a cardiologist, a specialist. All you have to do, anyone who's had dogs with, 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 with serious problems knows that just saying the word canine cardiologist costs you money. Um, you don't even actually have to go. It just all of a sudden you see on your credit card statement, you uttered the phrase canine cardiologist. That'll be forty nine ninety five. I mean, anyway, so it costs some money, but they were great apparently. Uh, and my wife says that she thinks that the reason why the vet at the normal place thought she might have fluid around her heart is one, she has this big lump on her back, which we can't do anything about. But two, um, apparently Zoe has unprecedentedly thick muscles in her chest, which she was just incredibly impressed by. And so like, if you didn't realize that and you were listening, you might've mistaken it for a muffled sound or something like that. But anyway, they did an echocardiogram ching, and uh, this thing, ogram cha-ching. I mean, there's like adding up all the costs of all of these things. Um, she's still a little off her game. She's still a little loopy. She, she can't really um, add up small columns of single digit numbers too well. But uh, she's, they can't find anything wrong with her. Um, it may just be allergies or something like that. Uh, but, but all in all, we were um, really, really relieved. And there's no, there's no obvious reason to worry about her health right now. Just that she just still does seem a little off her game, a little less interested in putting in the effort to kill small woodland creatures and the kind of things that really normally bring her joy in life. And the rest of the animals are fine, I assume. Yeah, Grace is just old. I mean, Grace is an old cat. And um, given how much my dog, I mean, I love that cat. I admit it. I don't like saying those words, but I do. Um, uh, I think she's a fantastic cat. My daughter is so unbelievably invested in that cat that we might have to clone her and age her and if she ever passed and not tell my daughter because it, just, it would be devastating for my daughter. And that's, we live in utter terror something happening to that cat just because of, of how much my daughter loves that cat. And she, my daughter's like invested her childhood in that cat. And like, um, so, we, you know, we must keep that cat alive at all costs. But so far, I mean, she's, she's Ruben-esque. I don't want a fat shame. Um, but she's also, I don't know, she's, she's got to be 13 years old, 14 years old, you know, and cats can live a long time, but um, there you have it. So, Someone did ask if we would have a cat expert on at some point to, cap, to compliment the dog experts and the rat experts. You know, I wanted to, you know, Ross Douthat's better half wrote a book called The Lion in the Living Room about cats. 
And I kept meaning to have her on or ask her to come on and things got carried away and whatnot. So um, maybe we should look into doing that. I am still, I've been trying to find a suitable dog genetics expert and rat genetics expert. And especially with the rat people, you have a limited pool already. Mm-hmm. And then the, the size of the pool is further diminished by how many of these rat people are A, a willing to and capable of talking, yeah, yeah, and yeah. B, are willing to and capable of talking on this show specifically. So, <laughs> so it's been great fun. Rodentologists are famously terrified of pseudo-intellectual demi-Jews from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. There's no overlap there at all, I've been told. Um, well, keep on it. You know, I mean, the dog thing we can figure out, right? I mean, like, it's, there, there, there are dog geneticists that we can we can get but um but i just have more rat questions you know that's all a few people asked how you manage your time and if you take any approach to um scheduling your work each day which someone specifically says how do you manage to catch up on all the movies streaming series contemporary articles and books and also write your columns help run the dispatch while attending to the whims of those demanding quadrupeds um Poorly. I was holding that in. Yeah. <laughs> um, time. When it comes to writing, what I need is I don't need necessarily a lot of time, but I need a lot of runway, right? I, I can't commit to writing something if I know in 45 minutes I got to get up and go do something else. And so that's one of the reasons I almost never do lunch because it just blows up my day. I like, um, and you know, that and not wanting to talk to the people. And, um, Having set times for things, that's why we sort of have set times to record the podcast and stuff that I can plan around it. It's the thing that really screws me up is, is like a lot of the CNN stuff and before that Fox stuff where you get asked on really short notice to go do something and, and their attitude is, you know, first of all, they're paying you, so you should do it. But two, um, it's really not that big a time a chunk, but for me, it's a huge time chunk because it's not only just the getting there, it's the thinking about it getting back and, and the interruption to the sort of writing stuff. I talked to Steve a lot on the phone, um, too much, although it's been a nice break of late, but no, I don't, I don't. Couples therapy is working out for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of this stuff for me is just muscle memory. Insofar as I've done this for so long and I've said this a million times. It's like one of the things that that really sort of, the panic pandemic really revealed for me is that I had already largely designed my life as if there was a pandemic already. And so like people used to look at me like I was the weirdest dude in the world riding in my car. And that's, that's writing R W R I T I N G composing in my car. Um, and then like with the pandemic, it all of a sudden became like socially responsible. And, um, so I, I really have no very good advice other than get up early. I used to be a late night guy and now I, I've been an early morning guy forever. Once I, once it dawned on me that my brain was better for the first hour, the morning than it was for the last five hours of the day. I sort of, if, if, if I'm working on a magazine piece, which I don't do very much these days, but you know, I used to have to write one or two magazine pieces a month for the, for the Met for NR plus all the G files and all the syndicate columns and all that kind of stuff. And even if it was the magazine piece was due the next day, I would always, if, if, if I was stuck, I wouldn't try and force it. I would just put it to bed and wake up at four in the morning or five in the morning. And all of a sudden everything would be fine and easy. Um, 
I got this advice a long time ago is that, that the only part of the day you ever control is the morning. Um, in the afternoon, the day controls you. And I think that that's true. It's probably more true for business people, straight up business people, lawyers and that kind of thing than it is for someone like me. But it's sort of become a mantra in, in my life. And other than that, I really have no good advice or explanation for how I do what I do. Um, um, everyone keeps telling me how hard I work and I, it doesn't, sometimes it really feels like I'm working hard, but a lot of time I'm like, what, I just had to write the G file and get the syndicated column done and do a podcast. What's, you know, to me, it's not, you know, I just had a dental hygienist working on me for an hour and, and like, that seems like a lot more work than the stuff that I do. Reminds me, there was this great episode, one of my favorite episodes of Community. Do you ever watch Community? Yeah, I did. I used to love it. Yeah, the first couple seasons are just so friggin' good. There's a great episode where it's a send-up of the Law and Order franchise. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the opening scene, you know, the opening scene in, you know, in Law and Order, at least in the old days, uh, was always, you know, two normal people, two normal New Yorkers discovering a body. And in the community, it's them discovering uh, a, a destroyed yam for a science experiment. But um, there's this great thing. You have to listen to it from the, from the very first second it starts where this one janitor says to the other janitor, dude, you got to stop hitting on your dental hygienist. And he responds, she's the one putting her hands in my mouth. <laughs> Which I just, I great, that. <laughs> the greatest line. <laughs> um, I did not hit on my dental hygienist this morning. Anyway, uh, back to the substance. That's when we that's when we missed last time. I remember talking about shows, but went off that were extremely good, and then just fell off a cliff and never really recovered. I don't know that a community fell off a cliff. Like those are fighting words with my wife and daughter because um, they okay. loved it for a long, long time. It just got really trippy towards the end. Um, and different. And, and I got to say, like, I loved Brooklyn nine, nine for the first couple of seasons. And then because it was running up against like, I don't I don't know if it was George Floyd, but those kinds of issues were all of a sudden to be like a hipster, progressive New York kind of show and be pro cop was problematic. And we gave up watching for a little while because it was just taking itself way too seriously and getting annoying. Um, and I just assumed it, it fizzled and died that way, but uh, it's been rerun on Comedy Central. And it looks like they kind of shook it off like the last season and a half. They kind of realized, okay, we've checked that box or that was killing us. Let's get back to being a funny show. And um, that's kind of rare for a show to like self-correct and get better at the end, which is probably a good glop topic as well. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, 
says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A listener asks, you've alluded to an NRO-like corner-like space on the dispatch. Any further update on that? Will or could it ever happen? Or has Steve stepped in and squashed the idea for good? He's not squashed the idea for good. The good thing about being a co-founder of the dispatch is that we have the equal number of shares in the dispatch. And uh, he cannot, in fact, kill anything. There's no such thing as a truly lost cause of the dispatch because there's no such thing as a truly won cause. Um, um, to paraphrase T.S. Eliot, I know, uh, brother Cattagio is down. So is Kevin Williamson. Uh, David French, were he not dead to me, um, was in favor. Steve's not opposed per se, but he's so reluctant about it that it it will actually, and there's so many other things on our plate right now, um, that we're trying to get online, um, that for us to stand it up and get it running, I would have to take lead and kind of Bigfoot over Steve and just say, I'm doing this. And, and negotiations haven't broken down to that level yet. So I'm thinking that maybe in 2024, I'll just, you know, I'm thinking out loud here with the heightened interest in the presidential campaign. And of course the exploding civil war in Russia, um, that, uh, I'll be able to say, hey, let's do it as a temporary basis, see how it goes, and um, um, and maybe get the camel's nose under the tent that way. But uh, the dream is not dead. Um, I still would like to do it. As weird as it may sound to people who think I write way too much, I often feel like, gosh, I wish I had an opportunity to blog. Um, um, it's real. It's 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 like a phantom limb problem for me. And um, and there's just a lot of it. it, it I, I think it. it in some ways, it hurts the G file um, because I end up when I'm running the G file. I keep I always talk about how I want to do it more bloggy style. It doesn't work, and I so I end up getting kind of ponderous, going too long on a single subject. Enough of my gripes, but yes, the 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 the, the group blog like thing is not a dead letter. Um, it just we're, negotiations continue apace. Could probably do some some punditry adjacent questions to address some topics of actual intellectual substance. Uh, a few listeners ask for your thoughts on the evolving Hunter Biden, <laughs> evolving is one word for it, Hunter Biden scandal and its ramifications for politics and uh, American law and governance. Could you elaborate? Sure. Um, I'm, not, um, I'm not deep in the weeds on the, the Hunter Biden stuff. And I don't trust a lot of the people who claim to be. Um, I'm not saying they're wrong or they're lying. It's just it, it has the feel of like 
when a news story gets to the point where I don't know what people are talking about um, because they're so, you know, fifth paragraph into their theories of something that they don't know how to bring people along, you kind of think, okay, th- this is this is a snipe hunt on the right, you know, that 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 is not going to bear fruit. I don't think that this is this. That is this. I just my point is is that I think a lot of people. They've been so obsessed with Hunter for so long, basically ever since the laptop story, that they don't know that there are, audi- that there are audiences out there that haven't really clued into this, and they're only really now hearing about the Hunter Biden stuff. So there was a story yesterday um, that this second whistleblower from the IRS claims that Weiss, I can't remember his first name, um, who was the district attorney, or the U.S. attorney who was handling the Hunter Biden case, was blocked from being was 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 not allowed to actually prosecute what he wanted to prosecute. Um, the way it was unfolding yesterday made it sound like this was a fatwa that was issued by Biden or Merrick Garland. I'm now seeing stuff. There's a thing in the New York Times that it may be more convoluted than that. That it was that Weiss reached out to U.S. attorneys in different jurisdictions where the crimes were committed and recommended that they prosecute those crimes there, and those guys passed which is different than, which is not great, Bob, but it's not Weiss wasn't allowed to prosecute. It's that Weiss tried to get other people to prosecute and they use their discretion to pass. And I don't know what the final truth is. For all I know, as we speak, there's some other giant shoe to drop. But um, it is, I mean, we've talked about this on the Dispatch podcast. It is obvious to me that Hunter Biden is profoundly corrupt. Um, and pretty much according to almost any standard, right? So not just like business corrupt or politically corrupt, but you know, morally corrupt. And look, maybe we all believe in redemption. Maybe he's, he's doing better now and all that kind of stuff. Though every time I see one of these interviews with him, he doesn't seem like a man who has really repented of his wayward ways. Um, so regardless, the, the question is how much of this goes to Biden. And at this point, I'm fairly convinced that like, it's a legitimate story. It's a legitimate investigation. I, I wish it wasn't Jim Jordan, that crowd handling it. And, um, but it seems to me that there are enough people in the mainstream media who realize, you know, this really does kind of stink. And there are enough people in the Biden family who've gotten rich off of this shady stuff. Like I, for one, I still very much doubt you know, this Hunter Biden text where he says, I'm sitting across from my father and he and I want to know where our money is or whatever that thing is. Right. And we will we will reap vengeance upon thee for a, for seven generations. If you don't wire my bank in Zurich immediately or whatever the hell he's saying, like, whatever that is. It's entirely possible that that his dad was in the room, but his dad might have been watching football and Hunter sitting there on the couch, you know, pecking away. Um, I I. I don't think it's inconceivable or even that much of a stretch to think that Joe Biden is conventionally is a conventionally corrupt politician. He's enough of a ward healing sort of old style machine politics kind of guy who grew up at a time and in a state where um, the occasional back sheesh or back scratching or whatever was pretty common. And I and I, I think he's kind of a loon, but 
he's not so dumb that he would do it in the way that Hunter does it. Right. So like, like, uh, the idea that he would flat out ask for a bribe strikes me as really unlikely, not because I have such a high esteem of his moral character, but because I have sufficient respect for how these things are done by people who know how to hide them. Um, and I'm not saying that he did it. I just saying it's plausible in the same way that I think it was plausible for Trump to want to collude with Russia, you know, to do all sorts of bad things because Trump has the su- sufficiently low moral character to do all sorts of stupid things. But it is outrageous. Let's put it this way. Even if Hunter acted completely alone and that Hunter is largely innocent of everything other than the things that he was actually indicted for or charged with in this plea thing, um, to bring him to the state dinner the next night is outrageous and insulting. And like in the old days, you just, you know, like you, Jimmy Carter, if Billy Carter had gotten, just got a plea deal for lying about being coked out when he was buying, when he was filling out gun background checks um, and for, for, you know, tax fraud, Jimmy Carter would not bring Billy Carter to the state visit from, you know, I don't know, Chow and lie the next day. I mean, just like, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. And Ronald Reagan wouldn't do that. Even, you know, Bill Clinton with, you know, his dubious brother or was it or Tony Rodham, who was even more dubious, um, who was Hillary's brother. They wouldn't necessarily have done that. I mean, at least when they brought scuzzy donors and other people in to, and put them in the Lincoln bedroom, they didn't put it on TV. So I just think it looks really bad. And I think that Biden, partly because of the old age thing, partly because they need people he trusts in his inner circle. And partly as sort of an fu to kind of troll Republicans and make them crazier and crazier, um, they think that this is a smart strategy. Um, I just think they're kind of playing with fire, and um, and I still think it insults the intelligence to think that Hunter Biden's artwork. People forget, you know, the deal where Hunter Biden had some finger painting or whatever that he was selling out of some art gallery where anonymous buyers could spend a half a million or a quarter million dollars on some crappy art. Um, uh, the idea that that was an ethical way of um, behaving when really it's just like, it's a really clever form of, and for a novel of like influence of way to like launder money for influence peddling or something. But um, the whole thing is just really shady. Why, why did the Biden family keep creating these LLCs? Why does everyone in the Biden family sort of in this specific kind of business again it's mostly just smoke now but like the smoke's coming from somewhere uh another list well two listeners asked two separate but similar questions about the supreme court one asked what would what are your views on the merits of or downsides of the supreme court implementing a code of ethics and another listener asked essentially the same question about implementing term limits in the supreme court on the ethics thing, I got no problem with the Supreme Court implementing ethics. They just apparently did like I like in February or last or late last year or whatever. And you can always tell the good faith critics versus the bad faith critics in this. And there are a lot of bad faith critics who talk about behavior that happened prior to the ethics changes and say they violated the Supreme Court's ethics policies. Yeah, they followed the current policies, which did not exist when the supposedly outrageous thing happened. And look, I, 
I have no problem. Again, no problem. Supreme Court can set, sh- probably should set for appearances sakes, for vibes sakes, some good, clear ethics policies. And it looks like they're doing that. I mean, I, I haven't studied this closely, but I do think that this stuff, starting with the Clarence Thomas and, and Harlan Crow stuff, and then the, the, the ridiculous attack on Gorsuch, which proved to be utterly meritless and, you know, and revealing of the intent behind people who brought it, you know, um, to this latest thing with Alito. I think it's, I think there's a lot, there are a lot of people on the left. I don't think it's all a giant conspiracy, but it's one of these things that like HG Wells would call it an open conspiracy. Uh, there are a bunch of people on the left who now hate the Supreme Court because it's not theirs. And they are trying very hard to delegitimize de- the Supreme Court. The whole argument of court packing um, was an argument that the Supreme Court was illegitimate. Uh, the a lot of the attacks on, uh, and you can see why you can see how this is really an ideological thing from the left. Insofar as there are a lot of conflicts of interest, there are you know there were examples of liberal justices like Breyer flying on private jets. Um, you know, at least that was disclosed in fairness, you know, but like, um, the, you know, the Harvard case, which could come out while we're talking, I guess, or at least this week, um, you know, Elena Kagan and justice Jackson, they have like real conflicts with Harvard stuff, you know, um, and the left doesn't, doesn't care because they're going to rule the way they want them to rule. And, um, um, you know, this Alito thing, I'm, I'm not as convinced as, as Sarah and David are that it was bad for him to write that wall street journal pre thing. But at the same time, I think the idea that somehow he is selling votes for a seat on a private jet is just nonsense. I mean, it's just straight up. Like, if you want to have an argument about how it looks bad, we can have that argument and you can think it looks really bad and I can think it looks eh but I can understand why you might think it looks bad. But like, if you actually think that like, you know, but for Clarence Thomas going on Harlan Crow's boat, um, he would have voted like a liberal. Then you really just don't know anything about Clarence Thomas. Um, or for that matter, Har- Harlan Crow, but you can be forgiven for not knowing a lot about Harlan. Um, who again is a friend of mine. I've been on that boat. I would love to go on that boat again. I make no apologies for it. Um, I think Harlan is one of the best men I know. Um, he's a profoundly decent man. You are free to think I'm as biased as you want to think I'm biased, but that's my honest opinion. And there's nobody who knows me who's heard me talk about Harlan Crow who hasn't heard me say that in private for years. I think he's a wonderful guy. Um, don't know Clarence Thomas very well, but I know a lot of people who know Clarence Thomas. And you, if you think that he's for sale, um, then you're just going with a cartoon version of the guy. Um, now I got lots of credit, which is an awkward thing for me because he's so close to Harlan and I like Clarence Thomas and I have lots of friends who are close with Clarence Thomas. I think the way Ginny Thomas has behaved has been indefensible. Um, I think it's been ethically indefensible. I think it's been ideologically indefensible. I think it's been factually indefensible. Um, her support for all the Trumpy nonsense is garbage. And I think it's obviously garbage. I just don't think it has profoundly or even remotely influenced the jurisprudence of Clarence Thomas. It's unseemly. Um, I can't 
pierce the shroud of their marriage about whether it makes him mad or not. I have no freaking clue, but um, it is what it is. Um, but if you go back and you look at the Alito thing and Sarah and David do a very good job of explaining why a lot of this is in bad faith. The, when you go before the court, the petitioners are supposed to fill out forms about their conflicts of interest, all that kind of stuff. Um, the justices and their clerk, their staffs are supposed to go with the information provided to figure out whether there's a, con- a meaningful conflict that might cause recusal or any of that kind of stuff. Um, if that stuff is not presented, the presumption of a lot of this pro publico nonsense is that like that Alito who hears thousands of, you know, certiari, certiari cases, you know, petitions a year, um, he should go Googling around and find out what some hedge fund owns and whether or not it conflicts with this thing that he, cause he went on a fishing trip, you know, 12 years ago or whatever. And it's, it's nonsense. And I think it's dangerous and it's, it's particularly hypocritical. Again, I think there are a lot of people who are just sort of caught up. They just hear this stuff on the news. They know they don't like the conservatives on the court and they just get caught up in Rachel Maddow's enthusiasm or Chris Hayes's enthusiasm. And they don't stop and think and they just believe what their people are telling them that the court is corrupt and that these guys are bought and paid for by billionaires and they don't use a lot of critical faculties and all the rest. Um, I don't think that they think that they're trying to undermine the court. But back in some back room, there are a bunch of people and I've had conversations with people in green rooms at like CNN of lefties who talk about how much they hate the Supreme Court and how they think it has too much power, which I love hearing because I've been saying this for a very, 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 very long time. They only don't like that the Supreme Court has power because it doesn't have power to do the stuff they want anymore. They never question its legitimacy when it did stuff it didn't have power to do. And now that it's basically sending a lot of powers back to state legislatures and to the people or to Congress, um, they think that's judicial activism um, and usurping power when in fact it is restoring power. So I have a deep philosophical problem with it. But somewhere in the back room, there are a bunch of people who are freaking out that the Supreme Court isn't theirs anymore. And they think that makes it fair game, particularly if you can just attack the conservative justice. I will have a lot more respect for Pope Publica and its methods and its argumentation when they start doing this to some liberal justices. Um, because it is entirely possible that, I know, I can't prove a negative. I don't know how many sort of unethical things or apparently unethical things the liberal justices have done. But given how shoddy, un, you know, how shoddy and, and cheap and sort of guilt by association and false, a lot of the shots on the conservative justices have been from ProPublica and these people, I assume you can do a lot of that kind of thing to the liberal justices too, right? And that you can still be undermining the legitimacy of the court, but at least you're doing it in a bipartisan way instead of this sort of crappy, partisan way so i i just don't have a lot of patience with 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 the story i think these guys overshoot i think um and the hypocrisy of spending all this time making arguments that i've made about the crisis of institutions the crisis of norms the breakdown of 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 legitimacy of important institutions um and then do this stuff towards the supreme court because you don't like its rulings um is profoundly hypocritical and um, it smacks of that whole mindset, you know, free speech for me, but not for thee. there are a lot of these people who love norms and institutions when they ratify 
their ideological desires. The real test of whether or not you actually believe in liberal democratic democracy, liberal democratic capitalism, is whether you have any degree of tolerance uh, for decisions that don't go your way. And that's just lacking both on the integralist right and on the you know, sophisticated left these days. Uh, I thought this was quite an interesting question. Uh, the listener asks, how does the current polarized political environment in America compare to other historical periods of intense ideological division? Are there any particular historical moments that offer valuable insights for navigating today's political environment? It's a great question. Some context. For years, I wrote columns poo-pooing this, oh, we're so divided stuff, right? And you know my spiel, democracy is about disagreement. People tend to, de- to, to decry political division when they're losing an argument. I grew up in the 1980s and 90s where the most sophisticated indictment of, the, of Ronald Reagan was that he used, quote unquote, wedge issues. Um, and a wedge issue is an issue that, you know, divides. I mean, it, it depends whose definition you want to use. If you use like the William Sapphire definition from the political dictionary, I mean, obviously I don't have it memorized. Um, but it's, a, it's an issue that divides your opponent's coalition, right? And it doesn't have to divide it e- evenly if, you know, um, like gay marriage, George W. Bush used it as an issue because it largely unified his own coalition, but it split off like 10 or 20% of the Democratic coalition who were sort of conservative on the issue. Guns do this sometimes. Um, abortion, depending on how you frame it, can do it to both Republicans or Democrats, right? It would like late-term abortion is a wedge issue against Democrats. Um, uh, abortion uh, or, or birth control pills or morning after pills is a wedge issue for against Republicans. Um, and I never to this day understood what was wrong with wedge issues. And I just don't get it. Um, this is one of these things that Wattenberg kind of convinced me on. Um, I just don't understand. I mean, I literally, uh, people have explained it to me a lot and I'm, I'm like Tom Hanks in, in big when they're explaining that the buildings turn into robots and I'm just like, I don't get it. Um, I thought that's what politics was about is like, is using, taking issues that attract some of the other coalition's voters to your coalition. I thought like, I mean, I don't know if it was Aristotle or, or Tommy Lee Jones who first said it, but like, it's like a thing. Right. And I just don't understand why um, it was so outrageous, except if you think about how liberals in the 1980s hate, why they hated Reagan, how they hated Reagan how they believed that the monopoly the Democratic Party had on Congress um, for so long was like a birthright. And it's outrageous to come up with issues that might threaten Democratic hegemonic control of anything. Right. And so anyway, that's a long winded dodge to the actual question, except to say that I used to make these arguments all the time. Division is fine. Disagreement is fine. I don't make those arguments the same way anymore because things I think have changed. I think part of what's changed is the negative polarization stuff. Part of it is the big sort stuff. Part of it is the way in which the parties have now become virtually synonymous with an ideological label, which was not a thing for most of American history. I mean, yeah, the Republican party had one set of issues and the democratic party had another set of issues, but they were issues 
and particularly the Democratic Party, they didn't have a coherent ideological framework that united all of those issues, right? I mean, the FDR coalition had hardcore racist segregationists and blacks and Jews and communists in it. I mean, that's a, that's a diverse coalition. Um, and, uh, you know, and the FDR approach was back scratching, you know, you help me, I help you kind of popular frontism. And that LBJ coalition has been disintegrating for a long time. And, you know, again, when I came to Washington, you still had to basically ask people kind of a follow-up question. If you ask them if they were Republican or Democrat, you still didn't necessarily know whether they were liberal or conservative. That's gone, right? So that's a big part of the change. And, and I think that this tendency to use partisan affiliation as almost a form of religious affiliation um, is dangerous and bad. So there are a lot of ways in which I think things have gotten bad. Um, um, that said, I think some of the points I used to make when I was saying don't get too bent out of shape about division still hold. You know, the 1930s, Democrat or liberals of a certain bent are incredibly nostalgic for the 1930s, for the FDR and the New Deal, and we're all in it together, and the Works Progress Administration and the the arts this and the Hoover Dam that and yada, yada, yada. And they leave out that like it was one of the most violent periods of labor strife in American history. It was you had um, you had legit sort of fascist movements domestically that were growing up. Also, you had a lot of people who were like hungry and in the street because the economy didn't work. Right. I mean, it was it's not a time to be nostalgic for. Um, which is now I have something I have to say to people on the right as often as I have to say to people on the left. Similarly, like, it's funny, you know, the people, you know, the sort of a lot of Democrats and liberals of a certain generation, the sort of baby boomers are super nostalgic about the 1960s and the 1960s sucked. And I'm not talking about because Herbert Marcuse went around, you know, um, whooping and a stomping, you know, raping the cattle and killing the women or whatever. I'm talking about like the fact that like crime started to skyrocket. You had mass race riots. You had, um, I just wrote about this in my column about nostalgia the other day. There was an 18 month period from like 71 to 72 where there were five domestic bombings per day in the United States. Um, you had a spokesman for the FBI describe San Francisco in 1976 as the Belfast of North America. But what people are nostalgic for was the idea that basically liberals were winning all the political battles. And so they think that meant everybody was unified and they weren't. Um, no one's nostalgic for that. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, only jackasses are nostalgic for the 1850s um, or the 1860s. Right. But clearly we were more divided then. And, um, I think what's different now is, has to do with technology, the decline of religion, uh, the, the, it's a point that no one ever wants to hear from me for some reason, but I think it's an important one. Social media and mass media, these are nationalizing forces, um, because they make the whole country, they pull the whole country together into a sort of monoculture. Monocultures are bad. And when I say monoculture, I don't mean I should take it back, right? I don't mean monoculture the way a lot of people mean monoculture, where everybody believes the same thing. Um, I believe what I'm talking about monoculture through social media and mass media is that 
event people are responding to events in California people in California responding to events in New York as if they're happening in California that every everybody's all up in each other's grill and getting angry that people are living wrong thousands of miles away and I think that's what's really bad um about this sort of knitting together everything through technology and so I don't I mean I honestly don't know what a great historical parallel moment to the problems that we have today are because you you pick the moment that comes to mind and I, I see as many problems with it as I see similarities. And I just don't, yeah, I, I don't have a great answer for like, oh yeah, this is like the 1890s because X. Um, because I don't think it's like the 1890s. I mean, 1890s weren't that bad. Um, and the things that I think are making things worse right now didn't exist in the way that they did back then. So it's, it's kind of hard to say. Favorite venue for enjoying a cigar? That's an excellent question. Probably some sort of, I mean, I can give you specific places, but like um, a porch, slightly cold weather, not cold, cold, um, but not hot. You don't want to sit and sweat, right? In like the Adirondacks and that kind of thing. Um, you know, so that if you have a fire nearby, I think that's sort of perfect, maybe even with other people around. Um, I'm not sure about that. Uh, you're ordering a pizza just for you. What toppings do you go with? If it's just for me, I mean, this, this is a little complicated because you're not married. When you're married or when you have kids, you may get toppings for a pizza, not because they're your favorite toppings, but they're the toppings you're never allowed to get when you have to share pizza with other people. And you can't eat a 16-inch stuffed crust in your underwear anymore on the couch like you can when you're not married. I, I, I eat much less. We make our, whenever we have pizza, we make our own basically. But, um, um, and when I say we, I, I mean my wife, I would say it would be something on the order of sausage and pepperoni with hot peppers. Uh, what sitcom would you want to have on your iPad on the, on a, on a deserted Island? I I, have, I can just have one sitcom. According, according to the listener. <laughs> um, uh, well, you got to pick something that has a lot of seasons, right? Um, because you don't know how long you're gonna be on this stupid friggin' island. Um, I guess Cheers, because there's, there's a lot of seasons. I'm trying to think. Not Mash. Um, I'd, I'd break the iPad. Um, maybe Barney Miller. There were a lot of seasons of that. Um, if I could only have one season of a sitcom, right? So like, I'm gonna have to watch it a bunch of them. Probably the first season of Thirty Rock. Uh, what would you love to write about, but don't? Oh, so many things. Um, first of all, I, you know, I, I've said this many times. I would like to write a novel. Um, I have some ideas for like sci-fi kind of novels that I would love to do. And, um, one day I still may, um, I don't know. I've been, I've been on a, I've been on a pretty big philosophical kick of late for some specific reasons. I'd love to write more like deeply about philosophical stuff if i had the time to do it right there's it's very difficult to like write a g file you know in three hours on a really complex topic um but i'm, I'm finding myself more interested in, in philosophy stuff i'm also much more interested in history stuff than I, i'm i'm on an egghead kick of late um i'd also like to do more sort of fun reporting where i go and actually visit a place and like soak it in and write about it um 
that's just logistically and schedule wise is, is, is hard. I also can't go like undercover to some place. Like I go undercover a lot of places. Most people don't have any freaking clue who I am, but um, like I couldn't do anything in the sort of jackass right world without being spotted in the lobby um, pretty quickly. And, um, and I'd like, I would have liked to have done some of that kind of stuff. But on specific topics, you know, I don't, there aren't a lot of topics that I'm dying to write about, but they're just too odd to write about. I mean, I, I, um, if I was giving in, you know, like one of the things I've said this many times, one of the muses, you know, the four sources of inspiration is like being annoyed by stuff. Um, cause it like it may, wants you to make an argument, you know, there's the old George will thing. And, um, if I was giving into the stuff that, uh, that sort of annoyed me, I'd probably write a lot more about the transgender stuff than I do. Um, but I just don't know that it's necessarily a beat that needs me at this moment. Um, and I write about it enough as it is. What are some essential movies and books that you think everyone should watch or, and read before they turn 30? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. Paul Johnson's Modern Times had a huge influence on me. It was really a very useful book. Um, I read it before I was 30. I think people should read one of Irving Kristol's books. Um, they're all very easy. They're short essays. I mean, they're not all very easy. Some of them are heady, but like, it's not like, because they're essays, you know, he always called himself a middle distance runner. They're indigestible pieces. Um, if you, the, the Daniel Borston reader, I actually think would be really good for a lot of people in their 30, you know, before they're 30. Insofar as um, when you read Daniel Borston, particularly like the, the Americans series, um, you realize how much history you don't know. And like, so like the modern times thing, it's a great book. It's a great contextualizer, particularly if you were a Cold War kid, anti-communist kid. No book is going to like equip you to like have mastery over history or anything. Um, the trick is to start reading stuff early enough to realize what you really want to do is figure out the right questions, not the dispositive answers. And Borston touches on so many different cool things. And he's such a clear writer that it at least illuminates all the a whole bunch of unknowns for you in a way that I think would be really useful for people who are, who are curious. Cause like, you know, it's sort of like the stuff that Virginia Postrel does. Um, unless you're exposed to it, it wouldn't occur to you to think about how interesting the history of fabric making is. Right. And what Borston does is he really cares a lot about like the role of technology in shaping culture. And, um, and that gets you out of the memorizing the order of the presidents kind of thing. And instead thinking about, you know, how diverse and, 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 and complex and nuanced American culture is and American histories. And, and sort of history in general. I mean, I remember reading an essay by him in my early 20s about how St. Augustine broke the wheel of history. And the argument was that prior to St. Augustine, um, our conception of, when I say our, I mean Western, whatever, um, conception of history was like this cycles thing, right? Where you have ascendant cultures, golden ages, descendant, and then decay and then destruction and go around and around and around and around. St. Augustine at the, after the fall of Rome makes this argument 
where he says, well, wait a second, hold on. So it's sort of like, I, I can't believe I went through the whole Brett Devereaux thing talking about Rome without referencing Monty Python once. Um, but it's sort of like the Monty Python Life of Brian thing where you know, what have the Romans ever done for us? Okay, well, except for, you know, sewers, roads, <laughs> and like they list all the things that the Romans do. Uh, St. Augustine, you know, makes this argument that, wait a second, look, you know, we are not heading back into some primordial dark place because we've made so much progress over the last few centuries in terms of all these technical things that we've figured out how to do. Um, and I'm giving it short shrift. It's more, you know, it's, it's St. Augustine. So it's, you know, St. Augustine and it's Daniel Borston. So it's Daniel Borston, but like, that's the gist of it. And that put in my head as much as anything else did a way to think about history that I've always held on to. And you can see it layered into things like suicide of the West. And, so I think the your twenties for reading, or your 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 late teens to through your twenties for reading, that's less of a time to search for answers and more of a time to search for good questions. In terms of movies, everyone should see Lawrence of Arabia. Everyone should see The Godfather. Everyone should see Chinatown. Um, everyone should see Doctor Strange Love. Um, you should go through the AFI list. Like I couldn't believe it when I first when we first started the Dispatch. We had this little round robin conversation where Sarah, David, Steve, and I, we talked about the AFI top 100 movies or whatever. And I was stunned. I mean, I hadn't seen all of them. I think I'd only seen like 92 of them. Um, I was stunned that like David was in the low teens or something. Really? Yeah. And, and Sarah was better, I think, but not a lot better. I can't remember what Steve was. I think his response is, what's a movie? Um, but um, What's number one now? Is it Citizen Kane still or has it changed? It might be Godfather. I'm not sure. Um, might be Maltese Falcon. I don't love Citizen Kane, to be honest. Um, I've had to talk about it a lot with my daughter because she's like this film classics double major these days or looks like she's going to be. And um, the problem with Citizen Kane is that it's a little bit like it's unfair to the Beatles, but like, because I think the Beatles are still merit listening to, but um, so much of the innovation has become conventional. Right. That it's invisible to you. And like, you need to sit there with somebody who says, oh my gosh, that was the first time that shot was ever used. Or that's the first time they ever did something like that. Or you see what they did by they reversing the thing, you know, that kind of thing. Um, if you don't, if you're not a film buff who is sort of looking at the, how the sausage got made. I just don't think it's that compelling a movie compared to, um, you know, multi Falcon is still great. Casablanca. If you haven't seen Casablanca, watch Casablanca. And unlike a lot of these old movies, the pacing of Casablanca does not feel super slow. There are a lot of movies that like, you can see why young kids can't handle watching them. Um, you know, without looking at their phone because just the pacing is, I mean, there's a little of that with, with Lawrence of Arabia, which is why if you can see it on a big screen, you should. But you should see Lawrence of Arabia. Um, yeah, so there's just, I don't know, there's just a lot of movies that everyone should see. And um, you should see Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And you should see um, Face in the Crowd, which I still think is arguably the best single movie ever done dealing with sort of the politics of populism and mass communication. Um, Eli Kazan was a genius. Andy Griffith as a sort of populist villain is brilliant. 
um, Walter Matthau is Walter Matthau, um, who I love. Um, and also, if you're on a this weird kick, like to bring this full circle back to the nostalgia stuff, you know, um, you know, there's that poll I wrote about where people think things were better 50 years ago. Go watch Network. <laughs> Network, I think, is a brilliant friggin' movie. It's weird for me because it's like so much of it is shot in like some of it's like literally shot in my neighborhood growing up. Um, like one of the funerals is at the synagogue where I went to grade school. And um, but it's it's pre obviously it's pre cable, right? It's pre internet by, you know, by in terms of even people's imaginings. Um, and yet all of the kind of conversations we have about the circus atmosphere of broadcast television or of television and cable television, and Tucker Carlson and oh and all of those themes are in it it really gives you a sense of how the issues that we think are brand new and super scary and uh that we get all obsessed by are perennial issues in a democracy um and in uh, certainly in an area era of mass communication definitely worthwhile uh, a related question listener asks which mainstream movies are the best at unknowingly supporting or advancing conservative values and positions so it's funny you say that. I can't remember where I was talking about a simple plan. Um, but because there's some movie out recently that someone was saying why it's a conservative movie. And I was like, it's like a simple plan. Can't remember who I was talking. Does this ring a bell? Did I do this on a podcast that you listen Not to? Not really. No. Unless it was on Glop and I missed it. Yeah, it's possible. Um, a simple plan is this Bill Paxton movie. I really liked it. I wrote, I remember writing for National Review that it was the most conservative movie of the 1990s. Um, I won't give away all the spoilers or anything like that, but the basic gist of it is that these guys find a bunch of money, very common plot feature, right? And they convince themselves that it's a real simple plan to keep the money. And Billy Bob Thornton, who plays... Bob Paxton's brother, I mean, this is in the trailer, I believe. So like people can take that word about it too much. So Bill Paxton is like, um, we can't do this. We have to turn it into the cops. And Billy Bob Horton says, what are you talking about? This is the American dream. And Paxton says, you work for the American dream. It's not, you don't find the American dream. And then Billy Bob Horton says, well, this is better. And, um, and things go badly. And this sort of gets to like this, I talked about this at the end of the, the Acton Institute podcast I did on the Deneen book. Um, you know, one way to think about life and also about civilization, it's sort of a running theme in, in Suicide of the West as well, is that the, the, the real state of nature is a jungle, right? Um, I know it's not just a jungle, there are also savannas and whatever, and temperate zones, whatever. But the real state of nature is like a jungle. And um, civilization is like a garden that you make where you clear out the jungle and you grow stuff, you cultivate stuff. Culture comes from the same root as cultivate, right? Um, you cultivate something special that needs your attention. That's why gratitude is so important, all that. And, um, uh, and if you don't tend to it, the jungle grows back. It takes it back. Horace says, you know, uh, you can chase nature out with a pitchfork. It'll always come rushing back in, right? This is my thing. And a simple uh, way to think about it also is that if you want to add a time element to it, 
civilization is like a path cut out of the jungle, out of the wilderness, if you prefer. Um, and we've learned some rules about how to stay on the path. It's this bourgeois morality stuff that I keep harping on. It's doing the right thing. It's, 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 it's thinking about your integrity, and your character and the, and being other oriented towards the people who matter to you and, and protecting, you know, basic rights. You, you go all, as long as you like about the, these things. The great temptation is to um, think that there's a simple plan to sort of very to cut a corner, to have a switchback, to like head them off at the past, to leave the path and um, take a shortcut. And that's what the integralists and authoritarian guys on the right are constantly arguing about doing. And that's what the left has been arguing about doing with technocracy or socialism or communism, all these kinds of things. They think that like these lessons, they take these lessons for granted. It's chestered and fence and all that stuff. And the great thing about a simple plan is, is like, it's a great small example of how a decent person leaves the path just also ever so briefly and bad things happen. Uh, more broadly, um, I've made this argument for years. Anytime abortion comes up on a normal mainstream sitcom, it ends up being a right wing message. Um, or it ends up being a pro-life message because you're not going to write a character who gets pregnant and then have them have an abortion, right? So you're always going to have them ultimately decide. I mean, yeah, they've tried some really fringe things with abortion stuff. It doesn't play normal average Americans, whether they're pro-choice or pro-life. People don't want abortions are a downer. And, and so it's amazing. It's how like, you know, you know Rachel decides she's going to keep her baby or whatever. And the second she decides to keep it, even though we've got like a whole season to go, like weeks and weeks of episodes, she talks about the baby as if it's a fully formed human being and I'll do everything I can to protect the baby. And um, on Big Bang Theory, when Bernadette gets pregnant, you know, uh, uh, Howard, Howie says, oh my gosh, we may, or maybe it's Raj, whatever, but one of them says, oh my gosh, you made a person. Right. And then just like, but she's instantaneously pregnant. You know, <laughs> you made a cluster of cells. Right. You made <laughs> the original you, line. You created novel uterine contents. It's not a thing you say <laughs> on a sitcom. Right. Um, I think most law and order cop shows are basically conservative in the sense that, you know, there are clear cut good guys and bad guys. And like, um, sure, in the sort of foxified world, you're supposed to defend cops even when they're bad. But for most normal conservatives, corrupt cops are bad guys. Right. And so like, but this sort of just general reinforcement of normal uh, norms and notions of morality, I think come through in a lot of, of that kind of stuff. I generally think the pop culture, I'm not going to do this Paul Cantor thing at AI, you know, in a couple of weeks, I think pop culture has a lot more conservative stuff than people realize because we so um, are attuned to dumb definitions of right and left and left and, 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 conservative and progressive and all that kind of stuff that we kind of miss it. Also, most people don't know any history. So like, I think it's hilarious. I love the Americans on FX. Um, I thought it was a great show, right? Um, that show, if you tried to make that show in the seventies, Noam Chomsky would come to your house and shoot out your porch light. I mean, like it was like, it took as a given that prominent members of like, of, of, of black power groups were basically communist agents helping the, the Soviet Union undermine the United States of America. It took it as a given that that bunch of intellectuals were really useful idiots or, communi or outright communist agents. 
that the communists had infiltrated large parts of basically it was saying all of your McCarthyite paranoia would have been right if you knew what was going on. And it was amazing to me how vast swaths of the left just thought it was awesome. Like we, we must've run like three or four pieces at national review, you know, either corner posts or whatever, expressing our dread about what this show was going to be like. And it turned out everybody, we loved it because it was just ratifying of, of the cold war. Um, or it was ratifying of, it was like more extreme in some ways than like the Bill Buckley point of view. And, um, which I just thought was kind of great. And I think that this is one of the things that gets into, it's very difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible. Hannibal Lecter is a good example, but it's very difficult. Popular pop culture fair. You are not upholding some basic bourgeois norms of morality. Um, uh, you can do it at the margins. You have to sort of go kind of dystopian or overturn a lot of things. You know, you can make um, Omar into a hero in The Wire, um, even though he's just he's just a simply, you know, I mean, he's a very sophisticated one, but he's a murderer. He's a murderer who ro- mostly murders other drug dealers. Um, um, you can have Byronic kind of heroes from here to there, but um like whenever you sort of look past the, the sur- surface, it turns out that the reason, the proof that you're supposed to like these guys is that they're good to their families, right? Or that they, you know, want better for their kids or whatever. Um, Breaking Bad is a complicated example of that. But, um, um, but for the most part, this is a good and decent country and good and decent people don't want to see bad people turned into um, heroes. And... And the only way you can really turn bad people into heroes is by having even worse people be the villains. Oh, Cantor used to make a point, which I think is very good. Um, you know, there are other things that don't have, that only seem conservative if you're doing it as a comparative cross-cultural thing, right? That if it's, that exposes the way like Americans respond to certain things versus the way say Swedes or French people would. And, um, and so like, remember him talking about how walking dead is very American, very sort of conservative in a small C pragmatic sense about, you know, the American tendency towards problem solving and pragmatism and all these kinds of things. And I think some of those kinds of analyses are kind of fun, but, um, anyway, I think I have a lot more answers to this question, but I think I I should now probably stop. Well, I mean, at least that took us to a fairly optimistic note to end on. Yeah, I guess so. Faith in the American people through um, fighting zombies. Yeah, exactly. All right. So thank you, Guy, for doing this on short notice. Not like you really had a choice. And um, it's not like the, the result was really anything to that's anything true. I people mean, people should experience. Again, I highly recommend people go back and re-listen to the Brett Devereaux <laughs> one. Um, I will say I'm going to I, I think I've only done this once when it wasn't because my wife and I were in the car. Like I never re-listened to the remnant. The only times I've ever done it is like on long drives when my wife wanted to listen to it. So I listened to it again, that kind of thing. Um, except for the, I think it was the last time I had Yuval Levin on where we talked about Edmund Burke and the Birds of Prey stuff. I re-listened to that because I, wa- I really wanted to rehear what Yuval had to say. But I think I have to go back and listen to the Robert Kagan one because um, in the, with the benefit of hindsight, I more and more think he's wrong about the 1920s and the FDR's thing about return to normalcy um, being fascist. I think he's, again, I think it was very clear from our conversation. I think he's right about a lot of foreign policy stuff. Um, But I think his analysis about, I liked his sort of 
there are anti-liberal and pro-liberal aspects on the both left and the right. And I think he's right about that, obviously. But I, I, I keep hearing from people saying, I'm not sure I buy that, this, that, or the other thing. And I got to go back and actually listen closely to what he said and see what I actually think about it. So I'll try to do that. I just hate listening to myself. I know you feel the same way about listening to me. I'm amazed your wife doesn't. I can't believe you, Jessica actually chooses to listen to the remnant on road trips. It's not often. It's really not often. Um, and it really is guest dependent. And I, 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 she literally thinks the, the solo, the ruminant is unhealthy. We have that in common. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, last thing I'll say, and then I got to get out of here. I had the pleasure of going to a wedding this week. I went to, uh, the wedding of Ezra and Ellie Troy, now Troy, um, Tevi's son got married and it was, uh, I'll be honest, a huge pain in the ass. Uh, cause it was on a Monday night out by Balt out near Baltimore. Um, it's only the second Orthodox Jewish wedding I have been to the first being Tevi's. Um, and, um, and this one was pretty much more intense. But once there, it was a great event. It really was. It was, it was truly joyous um, and, and a lot of fun. And I saw some people that I haven't seen in a very long time. Tevi was on cloud nine and, and pretty close to cloud nine because the, the youngins were carrying him around on chairs and on their shoulders all over the place. It was really adorable. Um, I saw Tevi's brothers, Dan and Gil, who I haven't seen in a while. We go way back. Um, and. Uh, and it was funny because a bunch of people, some I knew, some I didn't, uh, would come up to me and talk to me about how they think it's their job to report to Tevi when I make fun of him on this podcast, when he's not on it. And, um, and so it turns out a lot of people get in touch with Tevi to give him grief about the grief I give him on this podcast, which I thought was kind of funny. And so, you know, it's now a race. I'm going to wait for Tevi to tell me who's the first person to tell Tevi about hearing about me talk about him on this podcast. And we'll see, we'll see what people say. It, the problem is that it might be Tevi, but that wouldn't exclude other people from, you know, from reaching out to him. Um, but congratulations to all Troy's. It was really a wonderful event. And um, I'm really glad I, I, we uh, ended up going out. But people interrupting the ceremony and to, to go up to him and say, Hey, did you hear what Jonah said about you? <laughs> Just listen to the remnant right now. There's a lot of like, audience participation at a, at an Orthodox Jewish wedding that I was not aware of. Is that right? Um, yeah. And, uh, um, it was great fun. It was really great fun. Um, you know, I don't know a lot about that world. Um, um, Jess was worried about the dress code for obvious reasons and all that kind of stuff, but it all worked out great. We didn't stay all that late because it was a Monday night and it was like an hour drive, but, um, um, and Jewish Orthodox Jewish weddings go on for a long time. Um, I think it was from late afternoon until about 11 o'clock at night. Um, so, um, anyway, congratulations to, to the entire Troy brood. Um, and, um, uh, and thanks for listening and, and apologies for, uh, this regretful podcast. I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is still a podcast. Shut up, guy.
That's why I'm stuck down here in the dingy uh, hundred degree basement um, of AI. Of AI, say. yes, yeah. Yes. Just so listeners know, some of the we're breaking a lot of fourth walls here. Guys at the office, and um, for some reason, the AC is not penetrating into the recording studio. So he's already kind of seems like a minor character from Cool Hand Luke. I like to think that whoever was in here beforehand knew I was coming in next and just did that deliberately <laughs> as a form of punishment. Or that it was you, or that you instructed the intern to do it. it could, I, I would like to think I'm capable of that. Um, cool Hand Luke, by the way, um, is by consensus, um, eh, it doesn't have to be the winner, but it's up there. It, it was the in an episode of Cheers 35 years ago when they were debating what the sweatiest movie of all time was, which became a a regular G-File topic back in the early days. Cool Hand Luke was the dispositive winner. I'm not sure that's actually true, but um, it's definitely got to be um, up there. Um, have you ever seen Cool Hand Luke? Yeah, a, a long time ago. I can't remember if we... I know we've talked about this. I can't remember if it was on, on the air, but do the right thing. There's an ultra sweaty one. Yes, that's a very sweaty movie. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other examples. A movie called well Barton Fink. Oh yeah, yeah, that's which true. is not sweating all the time, but when they're sweating, it's very, very aggressive. Um, I think there's a, it's a Roy Scheider movie called I want to say Merlin, where he has to drive a truck of poorly packed. I'm not making this up. A truck of poorly packed nitroglycerin through some sort of Brazilian rainforest <laughs> or Ecuadorian or Honduran or whatever rainforest with on like bad roads. And there's a lot of sweat in that. I also used to always debate with Tevi Troy and some of these other guys. I got to talk about Tevi in a second, but um, uh, what movies had the fewest women in them? Oh boy. As a ratio to men. And, and I remember that what started the conversation was there's a terrible movie called, what's it? The Island with Ray Liotta, definitely Ray Liotta where he's sent to some sort of penal colony island and it's like he has to kill everybody and fight. It's really dumb, um, at least as memory serves. And there were like no women in it. And this sparked, we left the theater and we're like, gosh, there were no women in that movie. Or maybe there was one boy, female voice, whatever. And the only reason I'm bringing this up is one, we got to fill time. But two, um, I, uh, I was re-watching for the uh, 8,000th time, uh, The Great Escape. And if you're going to go on a, graph where you're talking about quality of male actors and quantity of male actors as a ratio of female actors. Yeah. There's some crowd scenes at the end when like the escapees are running through like these German towns that there are women in the background. But for the most part, there's just no, there are just no chicks in that movie. It's pretty impressive. So I just Googled movies with no female characters because this podcast has sunk to a new low. The first one that comes up is The Thing, which never would have crossed my mind, but I, it's, it's right. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Also, we don't, know the, we don't know the gender of the alien, so that's not necessarily right. But yes, that's a good point. Yeah, it's true. That's an interesting. I, that's one I never would have thought of. There's probably a bunch like that. Glengarry Glenn Ross is another one that's funny. I guess that's right. Is there no spouse? No, there's no wife at one of the home visits or anything? Anyway, it's a good one. Pretty much all submarine movies, right? Prior to, you know, the 1990s um, are going to be all male. Or I'm going to hear from somebody saying, well, what about you? Um, I don't remember if Ice, Ice Station Zebra had a gratuitous, you know, wayward female who just 
happened to be in the Arctic. <laughs> but, All um, I know about ice stations ever is that's the one that Howard Hughes watched about a thousand times on an endless loop when he was insane. And in is that Vegas. right? Yes, I believe so. All right, so we've we've really covered the gamut. Have you been to any? Have we? Uh, have you been to any Kiss concerts or Kiss reenactment societies? Um, none lately. The, the The next few are lined up for the end of the year, and I'm not sure if there will be any before that, or but there probably will be next year. Uh, because we the concerts of the end of the year are allegedly the final concerts ever. Will that be the case? Probably not, unless they all die. But time will tell. I did. Um, and I take I should still not say his name, but I did recently have lunch with the mysterious uh, high profile kiss fan that you referenced last time. Did you really? I did. How'd it go? It, if we we went to we went out for Japanese and we uh-huh. talked pretty much exclusively about the kiss cruise for the entire duration of the lunch. Fascinating. And he was endlessly fascinated by it. Because he wants to go, but he just can't be seen going, right? That's he, the gist of it. More, more or less, yes. And he, he kept asking, so was it, I, I think the track kind of try and justify not going to himself. So it was, did you ever regret your decision while you were on it? <laughs> <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever feel humiliated or, or question what you were doing with your life while you were on board? <laughs> <laughs> and I had to tell him, no, you're missing out. <laughs> well, yeah, it's also like you're 20 something. So like you shouldn't feel any of those feelings about almost anything that you do but oh, that's quite true 